Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. From 2016 to 2021, overdose deaths each year in Tennessee nearly doubled, according to the Tennessee Department of Health. That's part of the reason new legislation will soon allow doctors to offer overdose reversal medication, like naloxone, whenever they write an opioid prescription. Later in the hour, we'll meet one doctor who has centered his medical career around harm reduction after his own personal experience with addiction. But first, it's time for Add Us. Every Thursday, we're taking time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I'm encouraging to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me, as always, with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna, what's up? Hey, Khalil. Glad to be back in the studio. Yes. So listeners had a pretty strong response to yesterday's show on abortion rights and access. Yeah. After the show aired, multiple women reached out to us to share their experiences about seeking abortions in Tennessee. One listener who asked to remain anonymous DM'd us on Twitter. She said that she was married and economically stable when she found out that she was pregnant, but decided it was not time for her to have a child. She wrote, quote, it was a mind opening experience and one that in a way I'm thankful for because it gave me a completely new take on the importance of access to abortion services. I also learned how alone I was. One in women have had an abortion, but I had no one to talk to about what to expect. One in four women have had abortions. That's wow. Where, where does that number come from? So. Anyone who's been following uh, the debate about abortion online has probably been seeing this figure a lot recently because it's really popular to be used in memes. And it actually comes from a study that was published in the peer-reviewed journal, um, American Journal of Public Health, in 2012. So it's a real figure, but it's it's a little bit old. Um, more recently, the Guttmacher Institute found that abortions have declined in the United States, but that's because overall there's been fewer pregnancies and because of barriers for people seeking abortion that have been you know instituted in the recent years. So, um, the data around abortions in the United States isn't exactly perfect, uh, but the CDC does say that around 630,000 abortions were done in 2019, which is the most recent year that they have data for. What else stood out to listeners from yesterday's show? So there was a lot of symp- sympathy for our guest, Sarah. Um, we used a pseudonym for her to protect her professional and personal privacy because her experience was actually pretty recent. Yeah, you can, I could really feel and hear the emotion in her voice. I know it was hard for her to share that publicly for the first time. Yeah, definitely. Um, she described the COVID restrictions at Tennessee clinics as one of the barriers to getting the procedure done here. Um, it's the reason she ultimately, ultimately had to travel out of state to actually have an abortion done. After the show, an employee at a local clinic who wishes to remain anonymous, uh, decided to email us to provide us a little more context about the COVID restrictions that Sarah mentioned. They wrote, as she, Sarah, was aware, there are enough barriers as it is in Tennessee. There are very few clinics left, and we have very few doctors who are stretched thin, and some doctors travel several hours out of state every month to help out. 
That being said, if any of our fully vaccinated doctors even get a mild case of COVID, this can severely impact abortion access in Tennessee. One week without a doctor can delay hundreds of appointments and push some past the window where they can actually be seen. You know, I hadn't really thought about it, that side of the issue. That's, um, I'm glad it, it, it was brought up and something that we're paying attention to as we continue along with this, 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 this let's call it a situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we spent a portion of the show answering listener questions about abortions, and it's a part of a special project that we've called Citizen Nashville. We got a few messages after the show on our website, but the easy way to do, click record button at thisisnashville.org, and you can leave a message of your own. Let's listen to this message from Ash. My question is, when Road versus Wade is turned over, how is this going to affect DHS here in Nashville, who is already understaffed, when a number of parents are forced to carry these infants to term and then turn them over for adoption? So what I think Ash meant here was DCS, which is actually the Department of Children's Services. But yeah, I mean, what he asked was a really good question. The issues surrounding DCS have been pretty well documented over recent years. There are currently hundreds of openings for caseworkers across the state. And earlier this year, News Channel 5 reported that current caseworkers are just simply overwhelmed. Um, It's also been reported that children in the state's care are sleeping at the agency's offices because there's just not enough foster families across the state and otherwise they have no other place to stay. Wow. Well, one thing we know for sure is that we'll come back to this topic, especially if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Although our guest Becca Andrews yesterday said it feels like we already live in a post-Roe reality here in Tennessee. Yeah, and I think Ash's question is a really great fodder for a follow-up episode. And, you know, we'll keep tabs on DCS and start planning around that. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Same time, same place, and our listeners know where to find me. Don't forget to add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's keep those comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about a new law that will allow doctors to supply life-saving overdose reversal medication. And we'll meet one doctor who battled addiction before he became a harm reductionist. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. My next guest wasn't always a supporter of harm reduction, but after battling his own addiction, he's come to be one of Tennessee's most stringent supporters of the practice. So what is harm reduction? What are the rules in our state? And how does new legislation come into play? To answer those questions, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Lloyd. He's vice president of the Tennessee Medical Board. Stephen, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks, Khalil. It's great to be here. It's really great to have you. So let's start off with the biggest question. What is harm reduction? Uh, as simple as I can make it, it's about keeping people alive. And and so you, I, I loved your intro because it was so true. I was not always a harm reductionist, but when you start to look at medicine in general, in so-called real diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, 
um, you know, various other other uh, disease processes, it's all harm reduction. We we don't cure the underlying disorder. We mm-hmm. treat it, right? And we try to prevent the bad outcomes, the bad sequela. So I always use diabetes as the example. We don't cure people with diabetes for the most part. Uh, diet, exercise, and, and then medication. And what we're trying to do is prevent the bad things that happen as a result of diabetes. We're trying to prevent vascular disease, heart attack, stroke, uh, nerve disease, nerve pain, neuropathies, blindness, kidney disease. And if we keep it under good enough control, we can keep these bad things from happening for a longer period of time. It's all harm reduction. And so when I talk about harm reduction and what we're looking at in, 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 in substance use disorder, uh, it's, it's about, you know, it's not about total abstinence. There's a lot of folks out there that think, well, you know, the only time that it's successful is when you're totally abstinent, right? You're the, 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 uh, the chemical is out of your life all the way around and your drug screens are, you know, don't have anything in them. And, and, and if that's going to be your, your only outcome that's acceptable, it, it's going to be very tough road to hoe because some people get there in different ways. And, you know, so is it better to inject uh, one gram of heroin per day? Is that better? Is, is, is better to inject one gram than two? And mm-hmm. my answer to that is yes, it is. And if we're working towards, you know, towards that end, then that's a really good thing. Um, harm reduction is about keeping people alive. And until they can get involved in a recovery process to carry them forward in their life. And that's as simple as that's how I think of it. I'm sure other people have more formal definitions. In my research for our conversation, I learned that there's four pillars used Mm -hmm. prevention, harm reduction, treatment and enforcement. How do those pillars work with each other? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, Not very well. A lot of times, Mm. Uh, particularly when you look at the, you know, the enforcement arm of it and our and our colleagues and peers in in law enforcement that we that we need at the table. And and, and a lot of times, you know, work, work very well together. But, you know. Harm reduction is one of those four pillars, and I'm glad to see it in there. And Khalil, just your and I's conversation before we got started here today and what we've done previously in our life, yeah. we, will, we will bend the curve on this when we start looking more seriously at prevention, start looking at early childhood interventions and, and your past life, mm-hmm. you know, in, in addressing uh, adverse childhood experiences of these kids that are growing up in households where, where pretty severe abuse is taking care of uh, place, either physical, sexual, or emotional. And so I love the prevention arm of it, but we almost never talk about it. The treatment arm is after the disease has already taken hold and giving people access to treatment. That's another story altogether because then you get into, well, you know, what is effective treatment? Does mm-hmm. it have to be abstinence-based? Can you use medication? And I am a huge medication guy for the simple reason is I've got to keep people alive. And then, you know, the harm reduction part of that is is just where it all starts. Okay, that is where it starts. It, we have to be able to keep people alive. We have to keep them from overdosing before we can ever hope to get them into a treatment program and help them build a life that they're going to enjoy going forward. Now, we, you, you mentioned this a little bit, but I'm going to ask you a little bit more mm-hmm. about harm reduction and how it's different from abstinence-based treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, is that a... a is that a, a professional scientific thing or is that kind of philosophical? Uh, well, I, I would think that it should be a professional scientific thing. And, but if you look at the, the treatment world out there in, around substance use, it's the Wild West. Mm. All right. Most people who got into the field, like me, right? you've already said it, I, I got into this field because of my own substance use. And I wasn't interested in this in medical school or residency. And I got interested in it because of what happened with me. And, and, and so... So a lot of people who get into this field, Khalil, uh, think the only way to get better is how they got better. Uh-huh. And, and I actually did that early on. And after a period of time, I looked at, golly, I got better this way, but I had this resource, this resource, this resource, because I'm a doctor. 
right? I had access to care that the regular person doesn't have. And then I had to start to change my mindset. And my mindset today is this. My job is to help the person in front of me find the path to recovery that's right for them, not me. It may involve medication. It may not. It may involve abstinence. It may not. It may involve going somewhere. It may not. And so I've got to be able to set my own biases aside to be able to help my patient. And so, so it turns out to be a philosophical difference because you've got two different pathways out there that fight each other. You've got the folks think everybody needs to be on medication or they can't get better, which is not true. And then you've got the abstinence-based folks saying if you're not on medication, then you're not in recovery. And that's mm-hmm. dangerous ground to walk, Leo. I lose patience every day to that one. You, you, you talked about in medical school how this kind of wasn't taught. So harm reduction or basically, you know, addiction and substance use treatment isn't really taught in medical school. No, very rarely. Uh, you know, we're, we're lucky enough to be here in Middle Tennessee, and we have we have two medical schools here. Uh, we have Harry Medical College and, and Vanderbilt University Medical School. And, and actually in both of those, which I do teach, they, they are teaching that. They are addressing it. But, but nationwide, if you look at medical training and medical school and residency, it's very rarely touched upon. The proper prescribing of controlled substances for acute and chronic pain, which is how a lot of people get started in this, almost not touched on at all. So, yeah, it's... You know, and, and if you if you put COVID to the side, mm-hmm. the number one health problem in the United States, I would argue, is addiction. And you say, well, that's not true. Well, let's let's bring in cigarettes, right? Let's bring in nicotine, and yeah. you start looking at you know how many cases of heart disease are brought on by somebody smoking. I mean, it's huge, and and most of our our healthcare professionals out there delivering the care don't have basic understanding about addiction as the disease process that it is. Tennessee's overdose deaths are up nearly 30% since the start of the pandemic. And from 2016 to 2021, we saw those deaths more than double. What's going on? Yeah, the fentanyl. You know, I came to Nashville, came to Middle Tennessee from East Tennessee in 2015, 2016. And... And it was a different world then. We'd heard a little bit about fentanyl, but we knew as we shifted into the second phase of of the opioid crisis from pain pills to heroin, I mean, that's kind of to be expected because heroin's cheap. uh, It's available. Um, You know, people are desperate. We've cut down the supply of pills by a lot of things that we've done, education, uh, shutting down some plate, right, those type things. But if you don't have proper treatment, people... the iron will, the market will happen, right? And so fentanyl, so heroin, we could kind of see. Fentanyl, I didn't see. You know, the fentanyl I know about, Khalil, is, is fentanyl that you get out of the hospital, right? Patches and sprays and, and, you know, treatment for cancer. I didn't see illicit fentanyl made in labs brought into the United States and, and pressed into pills that looked just like the pain pills people were getting from pharmacies. And I certainly didn't see it adulterated with heroin. You know, here in Nashville, just last year, more than 700 people died from overdose. And yeah. 75% of overdose toxicology reports found fentanyl. You know, how bad is this problem in our state? It, it's a huge problem. Uh, you know, I was talking yesterday, the numbers that the CDC came out for calendar year 2021, and we lost 107,622 Americans to drug overdose, and about 75 to 80% of those are fentanyl. If you put that in terms of a 747 crashing, okay, that's a 747 crashing every 36 hours. Now, I just met you. I pretty well think if me and you knew that there was a 747 going down every 36 hours, we wouldn't get on an airplane. Yeah, right? yeah. So, and, and so it, it's huge numbers we're talking about here. But the problem is, is that they happen in isolation. 
right? It's not a 747 going down. It's this family in, in Clark Range, Tennessee, or this family in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and their, their loved one dies of addiction, and they don't want it outside the walls of their own house because of the stigma associated with it. And they won't even tell close groups like their Sunday school class or faith-based organization. So this is a huge problem. And, and the weird thing is, is that so much of it is preventable. And the other thing, Khalil, these are, a lot of these are young folks. Younger than you and I, mm-hmm. you know, who are losing, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of life. And I always looked at it this way. I'm an internist. You know, I work in the hospital, ICU, and medical step-down units. If I, if I put somebody on heart failure medication, I can give them five to six years of quality life. And that's not a bad thing. You talk about effectively intervening on somebody with a substance use disorder, you give them 50 years of life. Mm-hmm. You not only do that, you change the path of that family because their kids aren't raised in those environments. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why this gets so exciting for me and frustrating at the same time, as you can probably tell. Is fentanyl kind of a, a recent phenomenon in our state? I mean, I can't remember anybody nationwide talking about fentanyl 10 years ago. It's, it's because of, of, of really there's when you think of fentanyl, I want you to think of two different things, right? I want you to think of fentanyl that's prescribed in the hospital when people have surgeries, uh, they have, you know, end-of-life cancer care, uh, palliative medicine. Okay, that's prescribed fentanyl. The fentanyl that you and I are talking about is really not that fentanyl that's been diverted, right, taken mm-hmm. out of the hospital. We're talking about fentanyl, powder fentanyl for the most part, that has been uh, chemically made in a lab, like Breaking Bad, okay, mm-hmm. chemically made in a lab, and then pressed into medication that looks like we get from the pharmacy or adulterated in heroin or adulterated in methamphetamine, okay? Now, the issue is is that one such fentanyl is called carfentanyl. Carfentanyl is made to anesthetize rhinoceroses, made by the Johnson & Johnson Company. You know, when a rhinoceros weighs tons, right? Yeah, you and yeah. I, uh, you know, weigh 200 pounds. So, so you're talking about taking a medication that is multiple times stronger than heroin and morphine. So carfentanyl is anywhere from, you know, 500 to 10,000 times stronger than morphine. And you get a hold of one grain of that and ingest it unknowingly and you die. And that's the issue. So we're really talking about two different fentanyls. There's a fentanyl used medically in the hospital for a medically approved purpose. And then the fentanyl you and I are talking about for the most part is illicitly made fentanyl and illicitly consumed fentanyl that's coming uh, from, from other countries and brought into the United States. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. My guest is Dr. Stephen Lloyd. Steve, we were just talking about the growing presence of fentanyl and how it's contributed to the rising number of overdoses here. Tennessee legislators recently voted to decriminalize at-home testing kits in most cases. Why are fentanyl testing strips considered so controversial? Well, they were considered paraphernalia. Uh, for the longest time. And that's what this legislation essentially did was carve out a place for it. And if it's used to detect, uh, you know, the presence of fentanyl, uh, you know, for that, for the reason of avoiding it, then it's not considered paraphernalia. Clearly, I really struggle with some of these things and why, you know, why they are like they are, like syringe exchange programs. Mm -hmm. We know the benefits of that. You're from Baltimore, right outside of Baltimore. Look at the benefit of syringe exchange programs in the city of Baltimore with regards to hepatitis C and HIV rates. Yeah. It's phenomenal, right? You can't get that big a drop doing anything else. There should be no argument against that, but there is. And the argument is, is that by providing these things, you're somehow condoning its use, which is just not true. And I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, the, the numbers say that it's not true. So fentanyl strips are, are much in the, same, in the same vein. What could be the harm in knowing whether or not you had fentanyl in something you may get ready to put in your body? So I will tell you what the reason is. So, so there are folks out there in the throes of their addiction that are actually seeking fentanyl. 
Okay. Mm. So if you are a heroin dealer here in Middle Tennessee and your heroin doesn't have fentanyl in it and somebody is after the fentanyl because it's better. Okay. And you got to remember it's going to kill you. But, but when you're in the throes of addiction, you don't have insight, judgment, and empathy, right? The three things that you need to make decisions. You and I need that to make decisions every single day. Yeah. So, so you're after that. So you test the heroin that you're getting ready to buy. It doesn't have fentanyl in it, right? So you say, well, I'm not going to buy from you. I'm going to buy from this guy. Now the heroin dealer says, well, i got to have fentanyl in mind if I'm going to be competitive in the market. Mm-hmm. And so you could see how there would be a downside to that. So that when we're talking about these things, we always need to say, we always need to address all of it. We need to address the pros and the cons. And if the pros outweigh the cons, then we need to be seriously looking at it. And in this case, the pros do outweigh the cons. Now, you mentioned this syringe exchange. I want to get to that. Sure. You know, what is available here in Tennessee as far as, far as syringe exchange? We do have so. syringe services exchanges uh, here in Tennessee. It's not widely available as I think it should be. Uh, I think it should be literally anywhere and everywhere. And we've got some wonderful folks and my friends here in, in Nashville at Streetworks that I love and and uh, do great work around that. But they will tell you it has to be in certain locations or certain rules around it, and it needs to be more widely available. Why are the laws so restrictive? I think stigma from addiction and the fact that you still in some way look at addiction as a moral failure, and by making these things available, you're condoning it. What makes this work? What makes that work so complicated? I think things that people bring along with them in their prejudice. Mm. And, you know, we, we start talking about addiction and, 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 you know, people ask me all the time, Steve, if you could have anything that you want to help in, in what we're, what we're addressing right now, what would it be? And it's not more money, although that's good. It's not more treatment centers. It's for people to open their mind and look at these folks as having a treatable medical condition and decreasing the stigma associated with it. Clearly you can have the best treatment in the world, but if you don't have anybody to step forward and ask for help, it don't matter. And so I think it's the stigma associated with how we have viewed addiction, uh, particularly in in the United States and more particularly the South, um, for really, literally, you know, a couple hundred years. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that later on in the show. But, you know, we talked about this earlier, that this new law to take effect in July that allows doctors to offer an overdose reversal of medication to anyone they, they write an opioid prescription for. You know, I thought everyone in Tennessee already had open access to naloxone. What does this legislation here change? Uh, this legislation gives d- doctors direction on it. So if you look at it, it's it's that you, you shall. The word shall is used in the legislation. That means you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if you write a prescription for an opioid for three days or more, okay, or you're writing a prescription for an opioid and a benzodiazepine at the same time. So a benzodiazepine would be a drug like Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, Librium. Um, or if you're dealing with a patient who is at high risk, maybe they have known substance use disorder and you're providing a prescription for an opioid, then you shall write this prescription for Narcan as well, Naloxone. So so that's what it does. It is pretty widely available. Our, you know, I hear things said about state agencies all the time that are that are negative, TenCare and Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. These folks make care available to a marginalized population, and they do great work. And so these organizations have already done good work in getting these these medications more widely available. This just kind of kind of gives doctors direction. Hey, we think this is important. It's coming from your legislature, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not the biggest fan in the world of politicians practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. But there are some times where if you're not willingly doing it and it's for the public good, then it needs to happen. So you see this as a step in the right direction? I do. And and I'll take some grief from that because I've got some buddies listening to this show right now who, who are not going to agree with that. But but we've been encouraging it for a long time. And it's time to do something about it. And we can encourage you and we can educate you. 
but we get to a point where, okay, th- there's no there, there's no debate here. Fentanyl saves lives. Not fentanyl. Naloxone saves lives. Narcan saves lives. Uh, we need to get it in the hands of the people who are at highest risk, and we need you to help us with it. Now, you haven't helped us with it, so we're going to help you help us with it. And I call it God, good orderly direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that. We're going to take a quick break. When we pick up our, we'll pick up our conversation with Dr. Stephen Lloyd in just a moment and dive more into his personal experience with addiction. So stay with us. This is Nashville. Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about harm reduction. In July, a new law will grant doctors the ability to prescribe overdose reversal medication like naloxone and Narcan. That approach is considered harm reduction, which is something my guest has dedicated his life to. I've been visiting with Dr. Stephen Lloyd, the president of the Tennessee Medical Board. He is one of our state's leading advocates for harm reduction, vice president, pardon me, of the Tennessee Medical Review Board. He's one of our state's leading advocates for harm reduction after his own personal experience led him there. Stephen, welcome back. Thanks, Khalil. So you've been very open about your battle with addiction. Mm -hmm. When did this battle begin for you? Uh, You know, it it, it was um, in 2000, late 1990, early 2000. Um, and I was uh, already through medical school and uh, was in, in uh, one, it, it really the last part of my residency training in internal medicine. And uh, I was on my way home from work one day, and, and I'm not one of those, you know, it was uphill both ways to school when I was a kid kind of guys. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have work hour restrictions back then. And so we routinely worked, you know, 100 plus hours a week. And so I had a lot on me, you know, tired, um, had a young family. And uh, you know, personal life at the time wasn't the greatest in the world. And uh, so I was on my way home from work one day and, and all those things building up on me. And uh, I stopped, stopped at a red light. I was in East Tennessee at the time, my hometown of Jonesboro in Johnson City. And I flipped open the glove compartment in my truck and there were some Norcos in there from a dental visit months before I just threw them in the glove, didn't need them. And it's hydrocodone. And uh, I looked at those and I said, you know, my patients take these things all the time. And Pulled one out, broke it in half, threw it in my mouth. And, and by the time I got home, Khalil, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, suddenly my life was livable. Mm. The depression wasn't as bad. My, my wife wasn't as bad. My kids weren't as bad. My job wasn't as bad. And I understood very little about addiction, uh, almost nothing at all. I had no idea that my own underlying genetics and childhood trauma put me at risk. And, and so from that two and a half milligrams of hydrocodone that day, it grew to... Uh, um, 500 milligrams of Oxycontin a day within three years. And if you think about that in the terms of Vicodin, right, which everybody understands what Vicodin is, Vicodin is five milligrams, so 500 milligrams would be 100 Vicodin pills a day. And uh, at the end, before I got help here in Nashville, uh, that was that was what I was doing. And I wasn't living under a bridge. I wasn't living on the street. I was a practicing physician in the hospital taking care of your relatives in the ICU post-operatively post, post and uh, in my office. How were you? How are you getting this? Oh, every every which way you can think of. So this is a great opportunity to talk about some other harm reduction things. Uh, f- first place was out of people's medicine cabinets. 
So if I came into your house and, and I used your bathroom, I guarantee you I looked in your medicine cabinet. And if you had it in there, which a lot of people do, because you go to the dentist, you go to the doctor, and they write you 90 and you need three, you put the other 87 back in your medicine cabinet. So one of the earliest sources were, were, were medicine cabinets. And, and then from there, uh, other friends of mine who are doctors. And, and, you know, there's a saying in recovery that we don't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. And for the most part, that's true because it made me what I am today. This one I'd like to have back. Okay. Um, I would hit my friends up uh, for prescriptions and they all knew me and I wasn't a mean guy. And, you know, they know that I'm a doctor and surely he doesn't have a problem with this. He knows what he's doing, which couldn't be further from the truth. And so I would just hit up multiple people for prescriptions and in uh, my own form of doctor shopping. And, uh, uh, you know, that's that continued all the way until I got into recovery. I understand that alcohol and substance abuse is something that others in your family have experienced, too. You know, how do you think that that affected your own issues? Well, you know. Back back then, I understood nothing about addiction, and, and I'm really jealous now because there's addiction training programs out there that, unfortunately, I'm a little too old to, to go back to. We have, a, we have some really good ones here in Middle Tennessee and Nashville, and one, one in particular, Vanderbilt, but uh, I didn't understand the role of genetics. I didn't understand the role of trauma. And so if you look at addiction, I, I, I teach it as a slot machine. You know, when the three sevens come down on the pay line, that's when the money comes out. So the first seven is the biology, it's the genetics. Mom, dad, brother, sister, first or second degree relatives, aunts, uncles, any family history of addiction. If it is, your first seven is in the pay line. Uh, the second seven is is trauma, uh, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, a lot of times childhood, but sometimes as an adult. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so uh, I have a history of, of physical and sexual abuse as a child. And so I'm sitting there, no matter that I've got MD on the wall, no matter all the stuff, you know, that, that, that I've done in my life, I'm sitting there with the genetic predisposition and a trauma past, and now I'm waiting on the third seven is the social opportunity, and the social opportunity is in the glove box of my truck. And so at the time that happened, I had no idea about any of that. That's something interesting that you say with, you know, the, the genetics, mm-hmm. the childhood trauma, and the social opportunity being something different for you being a doctor, I can imagine someone who didn't have the privilege of that. Oh, absolutely. So, so if you look at, at me, Khalil, I, I never, I never used anything other than pain pills. I didn't have to, right? I had sources. I'm a doctor. I have resources. If worse comes to worse, I could buy it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Think about not having those resources. Pain pills are a dollar a milligram on the street. So if I'm using 500 milligrams a day, that's $500 a day, right? That's a, that's tough. Heroin is 10 or 11 bucks a point. And so instead of $500, I need four or five points. So I need $50. So economics shifts this right off the bat, just based on opportunity. And the real opportunity difference for me was access to quality treatment. And so when you and I sit here and we're having the conversation that we're having, and I love it, also bleed inside a little bit every time mm-hmm. because I know that the vast majority of people out there are never going to have the opportunity to get the quality treatment that I did. And that's tough. You know, you spoke about childhood trauma and its relation to substance use disorder. You know, is this really something that should have increased areas of study? Absolutely. Um, the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, I always tell people I think it's the second most important study ever done in the history of medicine behind hand washing. Okay? And, and the reason I say that is because I can't think of anything else that affects more people. 
because we know from looking at ACEs score, Adverse Childhood Experience acronym for that's ACEs. So we know that looking at ACEs scores, uh, when you get to an ACEs score of four on a 10-point scale, your risk for just about everything you can think of goes up. Not only mental health issues, substance use issues, diabetes, hypertension, different types of cancer. I mean, trauma plays a big role in medicine. And and we we don't, I don't think we have a really clear understanding of how that works. And I know for sure that we don't have an understanding of the impact we could make if we identified these traumas earlier and started to get help for these kids earlier than we do. Although we've got some one really nice program here in Nashville Public Schools at, at Fall Hamilton uh, that's that's undertaking this. But yes, there is a lot more study that needs to be done. And you know this, Khalil. We can make sure that every opioid out there goes for exactly what it's supposed to. And we can cut down the supply of this. People will always be looking for something. How can how does one get to a score of four and an ACES study? Right. So it's it's actually ten categories. And so it's just a series of ten questions, which you can Google. Any anybody can Google it that's listened to this, just Google ACES and, and the ACES survey. And so it looks at ten different areas of, of trauma, physical, sexual, emotional abuse. And uh, and then, you know, it's simply scored on a scale of one to ten based on how you answer questions within each of those categories. Okay, I want to ask you a little bit more about your, your battle with sure. addiction. When did you realize that it had gotten really, really bad? I had several, several of those moments. Um, and one of them was actually portrayed in, in the, the Hulu series Dope Sick. Um, I remember the day that I went from taking one pill at a time to two at a time. And I remember having two in my hand and knowing I'm going to take two rather than one, I was still taking them by mouth then. And I remember looking in the mirror and told myself, you can't stop this. And I knew it. I remember that day as clear as a bell in 2001. I remember it so well. And that's a helpless feeling because I couldn't quit. I remember the first time I got dope sick. Dope sick is the term for withdrawals. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was. I mean, I knew how to pick it out off a multiple choice exam. I learned that in med school. I was experiencing it. I didn't know what it was. And I remember being sick and, and going home and telling my wife I thought I was coming down with the flu. And then I remember getting my hands on pain pills the next day and feeling better in about two seconds. And mm-hmm. then I knew what it was. And and then the day that we had a patient come in the ICU who had overdosed on less than I was taking every day. That was a tough day. Um I was a teaching professor in medical school, so I had to, you know, there were medical students and residents and pharmacy students and residents around me, and I made that realization as they were giving me a report on a patient we had. As a matter of fact, we were getting ready to life flight into Vanderbilt, and uh, I remember having to stop around and, and say, we got to take a break, and I walked into the hall, into the bathroom at the end of the hallway, Khalil, and, and sat in there for about an hour and cried because I knew I couldn't stop, and I knew I was going to die. You mentioned that you're married with children. How did what you're experiencing, how did that affect your family dynamic? Yeah, um, they knew something was wrong. They didn't know what because dad's still doing well at work, right? I'm still providing and... The bills are still being paid. Everybody's still getting nice Christmas and birthday gifts. That's right. I'm a doctor, right? I mean, we we live a pretty good life and uh, I'm coaching Little League. You know, I'm a baseball coach. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but the home life stuff was falling apart. Uh, people all the time, you know, don't, don't, this is what you don't get with addiction. When you're addicted, the thing that you're addicted to is king. Without it, you'll die. 
Well, that's the mindset. What would you do to save your own life right now, Khalil? You'd do anything. Mm -hmm. And so you can say, I can say my wife and my kids are the most important thing in my life. No, they weren't. I, if I didn't have this, this pill, I wasn't okay and I couldn't have them. So I had to have that first. And so uh, I disconnected, I isolated uh, out in the world. I was fine. But when I came home, it was upstairs in my, in my bedroom with the shades pulled waiting on another day. And you got to remember every night I'm withdrawing when I sleep. So I'll wake up dope sick every day. Uh, it's a miserable existence. I tell people I went to bed half the time praying that I wouldn't die because I knew how much I was taking and the other half praying I would. Mm. And, uh, that's a tough way to live your life. And it's a tough way to be a dad, and it's a tough way to be a husband. Who was the person who addressed this problem with you? My wife knew something was wrong for a long time. And I used to see her at night, you know, saying her prayers, and, and uh, I knew I was in them. And uh, I knew she wondered what was wrong with me because I wasn't the guy that she married, but she didn't know. And my dad actually figured it out. And uh, uh, my dad and my sister— um, my sister and I didn't have a great relationship back then, and, and she had seen me uh, at like a Walmart. Mm -hmm. And I weighed 170 pounds and looked really, really bad. And she called my dad and said, hey, something's wrong with Steve. And uh, dad started digging, and of course my nurses and everybody protected me. Yeah. And it took him a long time to figure it out, but uh, I used one day in front of him. And, and really clearly I thought he'd walked off, and I threw about 150 milligrams of oxycodone in my mouth with him standing right there beside of me. And, the next day when I got home from work, he was in my driveway, and I knew what he wanted. And uh, he said, Steve, he said, uh, you have a drug problem. And I said, Dad, no, I'm just overworked, paying back med school loans, and we're working multiple jobs. And, and then he looked at me again. The second time, it wasn't a question. The second time, it was, hey, Steve, you, you have a drug problem. And he was crying, and I was crying. I said, Dad, I'll lose everything I got. I said, I'll lose my medical license. I'll lose my wife. I'll lose, my, lose everything I ever worked for. And he said, uh, he gave me the greatest reply, Khalil, that I've ever heard because I still haven't filled, figured out a retort for it. He said, uh, none of those things are going to do you any good if you're dead. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't have a comeback to that. And, uh, and I wanted help. And, and fortunately, I'm a physician, and, and I got great help. How would you feel in that moment when your dad said that to you? I felt like a guy out in the middle of the ocean that was drowning, and a ship showed up out of nowhere and threw him a life preserver. Now my darkest secret was out. I could breathe. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I felt relief. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with Dr. Stephen Lloyd about his battle with substance use disorder and how that experience led him to become an advocate for harm reduction. So when you did decide to seek help, what were your first steps? <laughs> Well, we went to see my sister that day, and, and uh, she, she got on. This, this is sad. I'm a physician. Right. I mean, I'm a trained physician. I'm board certified in internal medicine, and I didn't know what to do. And she Googled it mm -hmm. and figured out that doctors in the state of Tennessee can't just go anywhere. And there's a place called the Tennessee Medical Foundation that helps doctors with substance use disorder. And they put me in contact with them, and they gave me multiple treatment centers around the country. And there was one in Nashville which was only four hours from my house. And, and it's kind of funny looking back on it, but I was sure my wife was going to kick me out. Mm -hmm. And my best friend and college roommate, Darren Elrod, lives in, in Mount Juliet. And I thought, well, when I get out, Darren will let me stay with him. And, and so I picked the one in Nashville, and, and I met a guy named Chip Dodd, and he saved my life. And uh, that's all the research that went into my treatment center. And uh, I went there, and, and I went to Vanderbilt for five days for detox and then spent 90 days at CPE. You said something interesting. You said that 
Doctors just can't go to any old treatment center. That's right. There's one specifically for physicians. That's right. Tell me about that. There's multiples that 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 are allowed to treat physicians. Uh, you've heard of one uh, from from a little bit of your stomping grounds, the Betty Ford Center in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, mm-hmm. Hazleton in Minnesota, uh, Talbot Recovery Campus in in uh, Atlanta. Um, Sierra Tucson in, in Arizona, um, the Center for Professional Excellence, which at the time was here in, in Nashville. And there's a few more around. So, but you can't, as a, as a, as a licensed healthcare provider, I couldn't just walk into, you know, a great place we have here in Nashville is, uh, uh, Cumberland Heights. I couldn't walk in there and, and get treatment on my own. This was supervised by the Tennessee Medical Foundation. For, for me, it was a really, really good thing. Describe the type of treatment you you received. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to ask that because I, I'm not really sure what happened. Oh. Uh, no, no, it, it, I say that jokingly because the process that I went through, first of all, it was a detox, right? I mean, so I have to, I have to, you know, I guess the, on the street it's known as jonesing, right? You know, you're kicking it, kicking it. And so I did that at Vanderbilt, um, at the Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital. And then after there, and, and, and if I can, I'll tell you about that because that's where I started to notice the disparity. There were 24 of us on, in that detox unit for five days. I was the only one out of those 24 kids that got to go somewhere for treatment after those five days. Hmm. The rest of those kids went back to the street. There hasn't been a week in my life go by since then that I don't think of that. These are young kids here in Nashville that don't have my resources, that were simply detoxed off the drug and sent right back out into the world. And that was a day for me when I realized that, that I was like, oh, my goodness. And so there's two treatment pathways in this country, and don't make any mistake about it. And so the treatment process was about, uh, you know, getting to, to the core of what was going on with me. And started. it's where it's when I first started to address the trauma. I learned how to tell the truth. I uh, learned how to get honest, and that's a really difficult thing. There's two types of dishonesty, omission and commission, and, and, uh, and, and it's still a process now. Probably the most important thing happened is I got connected into a community of folks who had similar issues who helped me in my uh, in my walk in recovery. How supportive was your family? What was that conversation with your wife like? Oh, it was bad. I'm I'm glad I don't have to do it today. Uh, She couldn't have been more supportive. Uh, I felt like a failure. I felt like I'd let her down in in about every way imaginable. Had other issues in my personal life that I'd let her down on. told her all of them and she decided that she married me for better for worse and was going to stick with me my kids my baseball team (laughs) Mm -hmm. couldn't have been a better situation my work uh my the president of my university paul stanton and the dean of my med school ron franks uh, didn't fire me uh clearly i got paid every day i was gone tell me somebody else out there that gets that our kids on the street who are struggling, how many of them have jobs that they're going to get paid the whole time they go get help? We won't even give them help for their kids, you know, while they're in treatment. And so uh, my, my environment couldn't have been better. Darren, my friend, uh, my friends in Nashville, uh, couldn't have been better. Is this where you learned about harm reduction? Yeah. It's so interesting because I had it in my head as harm reduction before I knew what harm reduction was. Um, in in I'm, I'm a member of the 12-step community. So in the 12-step community, I started meeting guys and, and women in, in programs here in Nashville. One of them was DC4. I had no idea what DC4 was. And it's a drug court. 
And I started talking to them, and I got to know what that was, and I started looking around at some of the things that were happening and, and people trying to help others with substance use disorder, and and it, it shaped everything about me going forward to this day, and it all started right here in Nashville in 2004. So you believed in abstinence as a treatment. I did. And now you're learning more about harm reduction. Was that from this experience that you had as you were detoxing? And you said out of all these kids, you were the only one to go on to a treatment center. You bet. It started that day. It started that day and it grew from there. And I remember one night I was laying in bed and I, I sat up in bed and I looked over at my wife and, and I said, I'm an arrogant three letter word. Okay. Mm -hmm. And she said, yes, really quickly, maybe too quick. And she said, what are you talking about? And, and Khalil, I had that, that bright light come on that says, look at these things that you had because I got to feeling good about myself. I've done this. I've done this. How come my patients can't do what I've done? Mm -hmm. And that's when the light came on. It's like, Steve, they didn't have access to the resources that you have access to, and, and they're not going to. So what are we going to do about it? And, and I already had the basis of harm reduction billing, and then I just made, a, made just a, a, an unbelievable shift, and it, it became my life's focus. You know, I know recovery is a lifelong process. Yes. And when, so you moved to this space of advocacy for harm reduction, you know, as somebody who's still recovering. I'm curious... You mentioned some support, but I'm curious about the reception you really received from your peers as you stepped into this. Oh, gosh. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's been varied. I told you I'm a member of the 12-step community. I believe in the 12-step community, but the 12-step community uh, is, for the most part, abstinence-based. And, and around a lot of times, some of the things that we talk about in harm reduction, um, they're stigmatizing. And I would encourage them to, to look at their role in that. I had to look at my role in it, and that's me taking their inventory a little bit, but uh, I've gotten a lot of pushback. Clue, when I first came to Nashville back in 2015 and started talking about the things that you and I are talking about, I got kicked out of a lot of rooms. Mm -hmm. I got I didn't get through my presentation. I didn't get to advocate for because people would just stop me and, and tell me, oh, you're trading one drug for another. You're doing this. You're encouraging this, and this is not recovery. And, and so it was really tough. The good thing is is that a lot of people are coming around. And, and here's what I knew at the time as I was doing that. I knew that people would change their mind over time, but I knew it was going to take a lot of funerals. Mm -hmm. And I'd ask the citizens out there that still have that same mindset in our state, are 3,000 funerals last year enough for you? Uh, I had mine enough a long time ago. I mean, it's enough for you. And and we've had some great things happen in this area. We've had moms uh, that have lost their children to substance use disorder that have written about it in their obituaries and spoken about it publicly. I have a group of women in Williamson County that I love, that I've watched be courageous and walk through this. And Khalil, that's when we'll really start getting honest, when we can tell what's going on inside the walls of our house and share it with each other in community and relationship. And so... Yes, the response has been varied. We had my med school reunion, our 20-year reunion not long ago, and I've got classmates who have gotten rich and, you know, retired. And they're looking at me and going, Steve, what are you doing? Mm. <laughs> I've never been happier in my life. And, and I will continue to advocate for this, and I will continue to advocate for things that keeps these kids alive. You know, talking about this stigma, I've lost family members yeah. to it. Right. And like you said, if people were honest and looked closely— even at their own family, they would find that they have one or two at least family members who suffered as well. Right. You know, all that being said, tell me, who are the people who are in like the most dire need of harm reduction services? Marginalized. 
Uh, I remember when I knew COVID was serious, and I'm so sorry, this is going to make me look bad. Uh, when they canceled the NCAA men's basketball tournament, mm-hmm. I was like, I told my son, I said, this is serious. We got to figure out a way to get to our patients. Our patients will die because we're talking about the things I see in this building, right? We have masks, we have social distancing. We can even work from home. And Khalil, you and I can work from home. We got a place to go. How do you work from home when you don't have a place to go? And, and so I knew that this was going to kill a marginalized population that I was already working with in the areas of harm reduction. They don't have three or four months to go to high quality treatment. They're still trying to scrape by day to day to make a living and keep their lights on. And harm reduction benefits this population the most. And, and we seem to want to put up barriers to that, and I can't figure it out. I can't for the life of me figure it out because we're talking about keeping people alive, and I, in no cir- circumstance can I see the benefit of letting someone die. So tell me, you know, what does the state need to do to really step in and step up in its harm reduction efforts? I think we're headed in that direction. Um, our, our legislature gave us some tools here, as you and I have talked about today. Um, I think it's an overall mindset in, in, in our leaders, and I think I have seen that. Um, there are some positions that I've been into, and I'm not exactly, you know, high in hiding. My voice is pretty well known, and people know what I believe. And so I've been put in leadership positions to lead some of our efforts in this. And so I think that's a good thing, and I need help. And I need folks out there who may have the mindset that this is the only way to do it, to, to, to open their mind a little bit and, and see the benefits of keeping people alive. I need our leaders to look at the things that we know work from a public health standpoint. And we know that the things that you and I talk about today work. And I, and I need them to pay attention to that. I need them to give us the tools to be able to carry that out to citizens in our state. I want to thank you very much for coming on to the show. I want to thank you for your, your unabashed candor and your honesty. Really appreciate it. Dr. Stephen Lloyd is the vice president of the Tennessee Medical Board and advocate for harm reduction. Again, my friend, thank you very much. Thank you, Khalil. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This weekend is steeplechase. It's a full day of horse racing at Percy Warner Park. Tune in tomorrow to learn about the history of this glitzy tradition and how some are working to make it more inclusive. Get ready for a wild ride. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.